0: Today, we're talking to Ray from Populus Sapiens, all about personalizing data and optimizing work-life ratios. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO.
1: Yeah, so what's your background? Like, how did you get in? Did your dad take you around to
0: different technology <laughs> places? Well, I, you know, there's probably some influence there. My dad was actually um, a, a diesel truck mechanic. Um uh-huh. But when I was, I guess I was about 10, I went to computer camp, um, and I remember loving it so much, I saved up uh, for my paper route and bought an Atari 800, right? And I always remember that. It's one of my more obscure bio points, but... uh, I remember it came with, um, you know, basic and a little book where you type in a program and then you just tweak a couple of things and it would change it. And I remember, thinking like, wow, this, this is great. And then in, uh, and then in high school, <clears throat> I advocated to bring back, um, an advanced pace, placement class for computer science. Back then, I think it was, it was well, it was definitely Pascal. And then I studied computer science at Boston University. So I just it fell into something that that I, I really enjoyed, and you know, still to this day, I love. I don't do the programming side of things uh, as much anymore, but just putting together uh, the components to help help computing re- reach its its potential. So. At BU, I studied computer science and philosophy. So a lot on that intersection between kind of the known and the unknown. Everybody thought it was crazy back then, uh, cause I graduated in 92. But now I, I see it. It's, you know, regular, um, uh, offerings now, but we had to do it as, as two separate. Majors, and so I had to uh, I had to do some night school to get fit that in. But I, I loved it, and you know I don't think I would have been able to to put the extra time if I didn't like that kind of intersection of philosophy of science and computer science. Then uh, started off. I probably spent uh, kind of pre-internet spent a lot of my time with uh, client-server technologies. So that's where I got started. It was a place called Cambridge Technology Partners, which turned out to be you know to basically across the river in Cambridge from from Boston University and and it was a great place and it spawned a lot of interesting startups, which then um, we all kind of, Moved on uh, during the dot com days to the dot com consultancies, and that's kind of still where I am now, twenty odd years later. But it was a, a consultancy called Scient, and then we merged, it became Razorfish, and then then we were sold to Microsoft as part of a bigger acquisition. Then Microsoft sold us to Publicis. So I've been, you know, just all throughout the industry. If you look at my LinkedIn, it's like, "Wow, you've been at the same place for a long time." Well, it's it's been a pretty different place every you know four or five years. So now I'm the CTO, and I. Focus focus on customer engagement solutions at Publicis Sapient is my my current role. All
1: right. I've got lots of questions for you now. BU, you study computer science, philosophy, my type of person, right? And I'm curious to know how you went from being a computer science nerd to developing those skills to lead an organization. How did you do that?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think it it kind of fell in naturally. Like I, I didn't necessarily have in my mind that you know I wanted to be a leader. And I'm really fortunate to have worked at just some great organizations that supported us and mentored us and helped us helped us really grow. And at Cambridge Technology Partners, they had this great track from from developer through. I think yeah, it was technology team leader, right? And I, you know, I, I moved pretty quickly into the TTL role. Now, now I think back, this is such a long time ago, but it was, it fell natural and and the the, the structure of the organization was um, to bring in lots of young undergrads and and then grow them in, into leaders pretty quickly. So like it was, it, you had no choice, but um, I also felt like it, it, it came naturally. I was talking to some colleagues about this in the past too. I think the other thing in, in the computer science space uh, is, and even in the development space, there's just a ton of diversity, right? And, and it's kind of, that's my, my heritage is pretty diverse. am I was born in Brooklyn. My mom was Irish and English ethnicity. My father was from Puerto Rico. And I always joke our holidays were, you know, me trying to translate the Irish side so they could speak to the Puerto Rican side in Spanish. And I would always say, well, if you speak louder, it doesn't mean they understand your English any better, right? Let's see if we can translate. So I grew up with, you know, a variety of opinions and feedback and, you know, loudness and, you know, quietness. And I felt that. Uh, you know, working with diverse teams, you know, charting towards a goal is, is uh, you know, kind of in my DNA, I guess. Did you pick
1: up your technical and social skills from your parents? Tell me about that. Well pr-
0: probably a little bit of both, so my mom passed away a couple of years ago uh, and and we did a, a, you know an online service for her and it, it I, you know my mom was the Irish and English side, even though she spoke perfect Spanish too you know till till the day she passed. Her network of friends and and you know uh, colleagues was just amazing like i don 't know many people you know made it to her stage in life and one you know, of the sad things about pandemic, it was hard to get together. But one of the nice things were we had a virtual, you know, remembrance and it was all over the world. And the number of people who showed up was like, wow, you know, like I was so lucky to to be in uh you know that family and my mom who who really just, you know, knew how to bring together people, right? And she was just superb at that. And then maybe the technical side a little bit from from my dad. You know, I grew up uh you know, sitting alongside, helping him, um, you know, fix our, our family vehicles. And it wasn't just our family, since he was the only mechanic in the family, it was everybody in the family. Um, and so uh, he really had a comfort with, you know, kind of taking things apart and putting them back together. Uh, he forbid me from going into to auto mechanics, and I never learned as much as I should have because he was my dad, but <laughs> sitting along there certainly had an influence. I love that. I'm always
1: interested how we're influenced by our parents. It took me over 30 years to realize the reason why I get excited about technology is because my mom was a cheerleader and my dad was an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> right. Makes yeah. Sense. So it's similar. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. comes together.
1: Yeah, I lost my mom about five years ago and it had a fairly like profound impact on my life because you know, you hear people all the time say how life is short and it's finite and it's precious, but then losing a parent is like a very specific thing. And that was one of the things I had uh, or events that had caused me to, I guess, wake up and try harder. And I got into like personal development and I kind of went crazy with trying to become a better person. What type of experience did that have like on you?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I, I think it, it definitely, and I was talking to some colleagues about this the other day as well, is just, how do you make sure you're, you're driving that balance in, in priorities in life. Right. And that was a a big piece for, for me. I think a lot of times I, you know, and I I got married and started a family. We have two kids, you know, I'm in my fifties and we have an 11 year old and a 13 year old. And then I started a family a little later and I think I, I really always worked too much. You know, it was just, you know, part of my nature. I think I enjoyed it. So it came easy. But, you know, losing my mom really helped me to understand, make sure you're trying to find that balance. And then. I always remembers I had a cousin uh, graduated from med school and we went to her graduation and my mom and and, and my aunts uh, her sisters were there and we one, one of the things I really took away from it was this story the I love graduations and I love listening to the the speakers at graduations but the the story of uh, how when she was graduating medical school the the speaker at the graduation talked about she was juggling her newborn child in one hand getting ready for some aspect of her postgraduate medical work and and, and talking to her mom at the same time because somebody was coming over the house. And her mom's like, well did you clean the bathroom? (laughs) Yeah. in her head's like, you know, I'm I'm trying to get some balance here. And she felt completely out of balance. Right. And, and, and her takeaway, which kind of resonated with me too, is, you know, that's the way balance works. It's not always steady state. And so it's, it's trying to find that, that index that, you know, works for, for all these different constituents. Right. And we've debated that a lot with, you know, different colleagues over the years, but that, just, I think that made me kind of rethink that and, and make sure that, you know, I just know that it is a pendulum, right? Is that the right word? But just finding that is, what, well, when is this piece out of balance and this one more in balance? And um, I think that really kind of came to a head for me.
1: Yeah. I When that conversation became really popular, right, about work-life balance a few years ago. I started thinking about it and talking about it on the show, and then at some point I stole this from somebody. But they talked about like work-life ratio, hmm. right? So, for example, I just had my third child, right? Okay. And so Congrats. those two or three, thank you, those two or three weeks about you know three months ago, I was definitely focused more on my family. The ratio was different. I was focused more on my family than than work at that time, but. I think it's more about understanding where you're at and being aware of where you're at and making sure that this ratio isn't changing and sneaking up on you and and having skills to change that ratio. I think that's super important.
0: Yeah, I I, I totally agree. And you know and I think starting a family later in life it it took me took me time to learn that, right? And you know, but you knowing that it was some hard learnings, I, I hope it sticks with me for the rest of my life. Because you know, I'm, I'm lucky. I still really enjoy what I do. I love you know solving challenges for clients, and I think that's the kind of the nice part of services too. Like I've always wondered, do I want to spend more time building product? At, kind of you know from the outside in in the little experience i have building product it feels like you know that's a better business model right you know it's it's more uh sustainable more margin upside whereas you know services it's it's all about you know kind of helping to solve a client's problem and, you know, managing your teams into, you know, profitable client relationships. And so it's, 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 they're different. The services model is obviously much, much, much older, but the product model, you know, seems to, to be, you know, much, much more successful. So how how do you find that balance between the two? And this is a big piece of, you know, we all deal with things like that on a daily basis. Do you currently have any products
1: that you develop within the company?
0: Yeah so I have been part of incubating a couple of different products and and Publicis has made some really interesting strategic moves for, into into uh digital transformation and it's been you know a a long journey but the the two acquisitions that Publicis Group has made you know one was what is now Publicis Sapient so a large scale digital transformation services company right so how do we help our clients move from the old world of marketing and advertising to be you know digitally native in in the way they go to business so that was in publicis like i said it's been around about 90 years so that was the largest acquisition to that date and then the second or, or then it was uh, um, an even larger acquisition for, of a company called epsilon 2 which brings together a lot of products and so in between there i was incubating a couple of different products that now have have moved into to what epsilon takes to market um, just helping to you know build what this industry brings, which is a lot of data. How do we take that data and use that to activate on on, on advancing and growing our clients' businesses? So you think about um, personalization, enterprise optimization, all, finding new data monetization models, all of that kind of comes together under some of the products I've spent time on. My role now is very focused on you know, bringing all those products together, both internal and with partners to help solve client problems. So,
1: it looks like you guys do a whole lot of things. You have tens of thousands of employees. And yeah. I want to zero in on maybe two things that you said. The first one is you do some digital marketing, digital native type stuff. You, you do some marketing with brands. Yeah. And
0: so, well, uh, two seconds on Publicis as a whole. And I think that, that'll that help bring it together. So Publicis Sapiens has been around for about 30 years, was acquired by Publicis a couple of years back. probably... Probably four or five years at this point, but the the long the ninety year heritage uh, is you know kind of our two of our sister hubs. So there's Publicis Media, which has been a media buying agency, so helping clients take their advertising budgets and 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 take those budgets and allocate those across different media buying platforms, both traditional things like television, et cetera, as well as digital platforms like Facebook, Amazon, and Google. And Publicis Communications leads, uh, the the creative side of things. Um, So they'll help brands create that visual identity and and the communications of, of how those brands go to market. So when you bring all of that together, it comes underneath an umbrella we call the growth loop. And so on one side of that growth loop is activating all of your owned and operated. So this could be your website. It could be your physical presence, the coming together of those two things, and all of the omni-channel capabilities that are needed to interact and reach both your customers and and ideally grow the business with, with prospects. And then on the other side of the growth loop are things that the legacy publicist media and communications teams do. So how do we activate your brand with partnerships and within paid or rented mechanisms, right? So that could be advertising, buying, and the experiences that go into there. You're starting to see clearly whole new universes like Metaverse and NFT and Web3 as well, which we're talking about with our clients. But but at the end of the day, it's it's that growth loop. How do we bring those two together, have the technology and data to support that?
1: What do you think the future is in the next three to five years with Web3?
0: Yeah. No, it's it's a great question. And I, I worked a lot with our, our lead in in the Web3 teams, uh, AJ Dalal, who's been spending a lot of time there. I think you know, it feels a little bit like what we're seeing <clears throat> with cryptocurrency and you know some of the impacts there. So and, and if I you know haven't been in the industry long enough, I probably wouldn't have been able to recognize patterns back in ninety-nine, two thousand when we hit the the first dot-com boom and bust. And you know, it feels a little bit like I don't know if folks would disagree, there's certainly boom bus with cryptocurrency and some of the things that have been happening on FTX and, and others but the principles behind the the, the blockchain and hyperledger principles as well as the advancement of you know metaverse experiences those will continue to progress forward right you, you you can't really predict when it'll be you know feasible and easy to put on a pair of glasses or not and and enter the metaverse which obviously is going to be a limiter on adoption but there's there's enough you know brilliant people and amazing funding to, to move that forward. So if you look over the next couple of years, what are the practical applications of a brilliant innovation like distributed identity or distributed transactions, like what's behind the Hyperledger? Well, you're going to see uh, uh, great positive results there. I have a, a friend at a startup called they're building called Drop.io, and they leverage the low cost and trustworthy capabilities of the hyperledger to enable microtransactions, right? Which is something we've been talking about since 99 and 2000 as well. So how does that in a trustworthy way still, uh, uh, you know, and, and uh, a currency backed way still support all new business models? So we'll see more and more of that. We've seen um, things like the hyperledger, even going back a couple of years be used to create private networks to improve a procurement project with smart documents, right? So, okay, this procurement process is big and diverse. How do I enable that through a hyperledger technology connected to smart documents to reduce the time that a large, complicated enterprise typically takes to go through an RFP process? How, how do I reduce that with trust and distributed trust, right? So I, th- I think those things will continue to grow, right? They, they have clear business value, but clearly we're seeing peaks and valleys with more of that consumer of things and then your role you
1: mentioned that you're using data to find like create interesting findings but also monetization is it findings of monetization are they two separate things
0: yeah. So I, I think it, it kind of parallels to, to the growth loop too. So if you think about one of the challenges with, uh, regulatory and, and deprecation of third party cookies and even the, you know, deprecation of first party cookies in many respects. And Apple's done this going back to 2017. It's harder and harder to recognize a repeat visitor to your digital properties, you know, whether they're, uh, recognizing the logged in state or it's you're working with a third party cookie and partner to drive a remarketing campaign for products that uh, somebody who visited your properties might be interested in. And so what we call that is is solving for an identity or if you think about how that translates to a physical presence, an identity graph, right? So how do I, and, and of course, always lots of caveats, legal and regulatory privacy consent way. And I'll talk about kind of consent management, I think it's an important piece to talk about that. But clients need to solve for their identity graph, right? Customers expect personalization at least at the same level when they walk into the store, right? You know, the, you know I used to live in New York City And my favorite thing was if I went to the same deli I went to every day, they'd be like, Ray, you want the usual? And I'd say yes. And I'd, you know, I'd get the usual, right? And so that's that's personalization, right? And and so for customers who have consented in and you've you've crossed the T's and dotted the I's on, on legal and regulatory, like you, you need to enable that. that. That the heightened expectations of consumers is you have an identity graph bring together offsite and on-site data to to recognize individuals, personalize, provide offers, et cetera. The other side of that is an enterprise graph. And so if you think about that as well When I solve for an identity graph, and I have the ability to build you know, models uh, around a propensity to buy with both prospects and customers, how can I use that to improve supply chain? So now you're, you're taking to, you know, bringing two things together. And so what we've done for some organizations like uh, in, in the auto industry is, well, okay, how do I align your inventory levels with your offers, your marketing, your experience? How do I bring all of those together? And it's, it's everything, right? And so that means, okay, our, our data science teams are building sophisticated propensity to buy Models based on visits to dealerships, websites, et cetera, that identify popularity of a certain vehicle by regions potentially, right? And I don't necessarily need PII to solve that. I just need to stitch together, you know, legal and regulatory data sets to prove that. And then I can use that, well, maybe you want to change the way you're presenting these offers because of excess or not enough inventory, right? And so certainly the pandemic has shown that. We've been working on this for, for quite a while, but I think it's those two graphs, solve for the identity graph solve for, lack of a better term, that enterprise graph. And the reason why we emphasize graph a little, because it's a propensity score, right? And so if I could build some of that into, you know, physical constructs like graph-based technologies, then I could more rapidly build the analysis and the outcomes against that. And you're not just building, you know, I grew up in the old days, I was a DBA, you know, a traditional relational database model that only connects two things when you've complied with the rules of your, database structure right now you're connecting things based on propensity and other models that that give you the ability to do things you couldn't do in the past that's pretty cool so how is your team structured then yeah Yeah, so my focus is really how do I assemble this with all of our partners, right? And and as you can imagine, three of the biggest partners I work with are our cloud compute partners, right? And so they're a huge amplifier for us being able to do things that wasn't feasible a couple of years ago and it wasn't feasible because the startup cost or the technologies to do this would would take a lot more time and that that's really cloud computing at, at its at its at its heart is it's enabling new things I always used to say when when Amazon first came out um I remember being amazed that I could spin up a hundred instances uh, you know on on AWS in less time than it took to reboot a laptop you know <laughs> like wow all I need is a credit card and, and a Count and I just spun up a hundred instances. It takes me longer to restart my laptop, right? And so it's just it was mind boggling. And so now you know that that assembling those partnerships and those teams is, is critical. And then at Sapient, I work with our capability leadership teams to to build the solutions that bring all of this together. Right? And there's a lot of domain expertise as well when you're solving for identity and identity graph data, right? You know, if you look at this is what Facebook, Amazon, and Google have done really well, but this is something that's been a challenge for, for, for traditional enterprises, right? They, they've they maybe captured customer data, but they're still at the point where many enterprises are combining a point-of-sale individual with an online individual, right? You know, so even in a consent environment, they're not doing the things that customers expect. So it's building that domain expertise. And then where it comes together to deliver um, from a transformational perspective are uh, my partners I work with in, in our enterprise capabilities. So we, we, we use an act acronym called SPEED, so strategy, strategy, product, experience, engineering, and data. So all of those are across the, you know, basically all of Sapien and all of the group. So how do I make sure I'm aligning the the data science capabilities with the engineering capabilities, right? Especially since, as we all know, a lot of data science is, what, 60, 70, 80% is data wrangling and data engineering. So bringing all that together is part of my role. That's pretty cool. You, you enjoy what you do a lot? Yeah, you know, I'm really lucky. I think when you look at the the promise, and you know, a lot of what we've been talking about for, you know, I'd, I'd say it really ratcheted up be when the feasibility became possible, right? When cloud computing really made a lot of this possible. I'll go back to kind of an inspiration from from a Google white paper, which became a Yahoo project, which became a a service on Amazon, but. <clears throat> it, it, it feels like we're still at the beginning of that, right? So I've been talking about it for quite a while. And I guess it's going back uh, a long time. A, a book we launched, I had a couple chapters on this intersection of how to solve for identity. And that goes back eight, nine, ten years. Um, And I still feel like the opportunity is, is large. There's still plenty, plenty of white space to help large enterprises do this. And every year the technology gets stronger and stronger, right? So you know, back to that story around kind of, there's a technology that sits on Google cloud called BigQuery. And there was a white paper that years ago, I think it was called BigTable. And we, used, I remember when Google came out with it, but it was, you know, the, the infinitely scalable infrastructure they built to enable them to uh, um, really ingest data uh, at, at scale without any you know row level locking or any limitations on a server by server basis right and so google invented this while we were trying to get you know clusters of traditional relational databases to to, to work together to supply internet scale and it, it wasn't working but so Google wrote this white paper, published it to the world. Then Doug Cutting, a developer at Yahoo, took that white paper and implemented Hadoop, right? And then Amazon said, hey, this Hadoop thing's really cool. Why don't I offer it as a service? And Amazon created Elastic MapReduce, right? So then, what? and this was maybe, you know, 10 odd years ago, all of a sudden I had the Infrastructure strength of, of what Google was using to index the whole internet. And I could rent it for, you know, pennies on the hour, right? So that, that really just unlocked capabilities because people couldn't do it. Google did until it was, you know, something that you can rent and feasibly approach.
1: Now I want to talk a little bit about these. You said there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of white space. I'm going to agree with you. So I've done interviews this year with fingerprint.js. They do something like fingerprinting the browsers to help you identify like repeat logins and, and things like that. I also got to meet with beyond identity. One of the interesting things they do is they use this special chip that was originally designed in the, on the computer for like DRM licensing, like for media. Oh, right. Yeah, and, yeah. and they use that to hold some keys or something. And basically they have like a passwordless offering. So I've seen a lot of this like passwordless stuff where they're using all the attributes of who the person is and where they should be and everything. Are you working with any of these companies? Uh, not necessarily those two
0: brands, but do you
1: partner with these companies or do you roll your own stuff in house?
0: Yeah, so so a little bit of both, and and I think decentralized identity. Back to your earlier question, like you know, where do we think Web three, Metaverse, um, Hyperledger is headed? That feels like a great opportunity, right? Because if if you roll this back to what started this, um, you know, really regulatory uh, environment was, it goes back to a case in Europe. I don't know if you remember, but a citizen of Spain wanted to be to be deleted from Google search index there were some public records that talked about their bankruptcy that they were un- unhappy with and you know initially everyone looked at it it's like but this is public records you know Google's just Creating a pointer to it. And so that then the question became, well, but this is still my data. I own this, right? And I think there's, there's been some, um, uh, legislation recently too around the search index companies and, and, and uh, publications and newspapers, et cetera. And, and so if you think about that, that, that's kind of the heart and spirit for all of these identity questions. And so how do we, how do we respect that right to be forgotten? And empower customers in a way that allows them to control where their identity can be shared or not in exchange for you know, better services or whatever the, the, the thing might be. And so, interestingly enough, there's lots of public data that's been around to help identity, right? And so, one of our sister companies, Epsilon, has a long, long heritage, I think going back 50 years, using public data to help organizations improve their traditional mail campaigns, You know, their understanding of customer data. And some of the Companies in that traditional industry actually were the first to digitize the old phone book. I don't know that kids remember phone books much now oh, yeah, but right? the yellow pages. Yes. they don't chop down the trees and leave them on your doorstep all the it's every year anymore. now. <laughs> yeah well, and I always remember I think it was in the Terminator too. so my my uh, we were going back east to be with our family for Thanksgiving. and in the airport, we were in Roanoke, Virginia. There was a pay phone, and I was kind of excited. I was hoping it had a phone book, but it didn't have a phone book, but it had a paper. but, you know, it took some pictures with my son, right? Like this, you know, kind of interesting artifact of years past. But again, the, the point is that was all public data, right? You know, the Terminator was able to find Sarah Connor by going in the phone book, right? So, so that public data still provides a pretty strong anchor for, you know, quality customer data, identity, et cetera. And, you know, I assume, you know, if, if you're really going to look at consent, you know, at some point they might have to go there, but that is, is important. And so working with established legal and regulatory compliant approaches is key, right? Obviously, large enterprise companies need to do this. There continues to be flux, too, right? So what in, in the regulatory requirements, the, the California Consumer Privacy Act was number one. They've already iterated on that. And then different states had different regulatory uh-huh. needs. So I Texas think this just sued Facebook, right? And didn't they? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I always tell the story. One of our colleagues is a bit of a side hustle collecting on the class action lawsuits where people are not <laughs> complying with these. And, and so, for example, you know, uh, Snap violated the Illinois Biometric Law somehow, and there was a class action lawsuit. They lost. If you're a Snap uh, uh, customer in Illinois, you can fill out this form and, and get a check, right? And so, and and it seems like it's going to continue to go. So I think to your question on you know companies like Fingerprint and Beyond Identity, I think they're going to have an interesting opportunity as we move forward. And I would hope that it becomes Easy for people to give and take back consent, and right now there's a lot of complexity. and And I think you've got to stick with, again, right? Um, I don't work in the legal field, but you know, whatever your organization's interpretation of legal privacy regulations as it applies to to your 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 go forward, that's going to be Im- important. But I, I think some of these other technologies are going to have an interesting approach, especially the decentralized ID ones, because I think in some ways, right, like Apple deprecated could. In 2017, third-party cookies on a browser, and they delete first-party cookies after seven days, right? So all of these things actually make it harder for customers in some ways to 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 deal with their data, right? In the past, you could turn off cookies. Now, how do I turn off, uh, you know, somebody that might be using my data for another purpose, right? And and there's so many companies out there doing it, individual companies, third-party companies. How do you bring that all together? So there, there's a lot that needs to happen in the industry to you know, both stay compliant with legal and regulatory, but also with the spirit of the right to be forgotten.
1: Yeah. I have a hard time with it because I straddle the the fence between I'm a consumer and I want my privacy option and I own a business and I love marketing. <laughs> right. It, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to show marketing to people who don't want to see it, but right. it, you know, what happened with that person who wanted the bankruptcy removed, did they get it or did
0: you, did you not follow it? No, they did get it. You know, I, I might be missing it a little bit, but they, they I believe they won the lawsuit, which eventually became the general data privacy regulations in uh. in the EU. Right? And so it started off with, hey, I'm going to put a cookie on your laptop for this experience, right? You remember any EU website had to, to oh, um, yeah. comply with that. And then GDPR made it, this was an interesting twist to GDPR is you needed to provide the ability to interact with an individual's records. They need to be able to claim and get their records deleted. You could do that on Google, you could do that on Facebook, all of that, right? And so I think that lawsuit became the inspiration for what was kind of already feasible, but now it's it's much more feasible. And interestingly enough, you're seeing this, like we t- we're talking a lot about this and, you know, this is commerce and marketing experiences. Like it's all of these experiences are impacted. And now what we're seeing in the U.S. is there's a regulation around patient records, right? Because it. Mm. As, as a uh, life sciences provider, you weren't legally obligated to make your records available digitally. And so now in 2023, every um, uh, um, uh, every business in that industry needs to make a record available digitally, right? Which is great because now I can start to think about doing things like, hey, how do I combine my cardiologist data with my – I'm a whoop band person. I love the whoop band. How do I bring those to – data sets together to better inform, you know, my, my heart and, and card- cardiac health, right? Things of that nature. What does that whoop band tell you? So the Whoop, yeah, I'm a totally nerd about this. So I turned fifty a couple of years ago, and I was like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm closer to heart attack territory. <laughs> but more, more interestingly, there's a great podcast the founder of Whoop does, and and it's a couple of uh, leaders on his team from the data science team, and and what it does differently than like an Apple Watch or others is it measures heart rate variability, which took like a lot of time to, for me to try to understand that. Which is what's the distance of time between your beats. And it turns out the current thinking is, right, and, and and this might might help, is that the greater variability between your heartbeats, the healthier you are. And you could use this to measure standing in front of a computer all day, stress on your body, or, you know, I went for a hard mountain bike ride or something else the day before. And so then in between that, you're like, okay, what are the levers I can pull to improve my recovery? Um, and it measures a bunch of other things too. But to, to measure it well, you have to wear it all the time so it's got this charger that allows you to charge it while it's on and that's what makes it different i think it's a little more comfortable than a big bulky watch and it's so heart rate variability is kind of the anchor for this analysis but it's also things like respiratory rate a little bit of your galvanic skin response so uh you, you know whether you're you're cold or hot you know, a bunch of these metrics it, it measures and then it brings them all together gives you a recovery score and so what was fun about it was and it allows you to keep a journal so if you got your vaccine the day before it had collected and built a report on everybody who reported getting the vaccine and the impact it had on recovery rate and so now you know again so it's it kind of grew out of the fitness industry but you could see applicability everywhere so it's really really fun stuff
1: i want to head in the direction of wrapping up so I've got a couple last questions for you. The first one is, what's the call to action here? What do we want people listening to this show to do? Do they need to go to Publicis and and sign up for something? Is there an email list?
0: What are we driving them towards? Yeah, well, I think at, at the end of the day, we want to expand our client influence and support so we want clients to come to us to help them solve for their identity and enterprise gap, graph right and so they can go to publicisavian.com signed up for all our thought leadership which we we continue to expand and you know start to build a relationship we're growing too so for people interested in data engineering data science cloud computing we we love talking to candidates. And what's the best piece of leadership advice that
1: you've ever received and then put into practice and it's like stuck with you?
0: Yeah. And so, you know, it's interesting. I You know, I think there's a lot of really strong momentum around a modern approach to, to working with teams and, and helping our teams find balance right and so and again this probably goes back to my upbringing to, to some degree is is helping to build an environment that gives everyone the the comfort to contribute to your end goals right and so I touched a little bit on you know since I started my career so long ago on the more traditional leadership styles which were very top-down. And then you were looking at companies like some of my inspirational leaders were companies like the Basecamp guys. And they came out, you know, quite a long time ago. Now they came out with a book called DHH? Yes, oh, yeah, yeah. yes. Right. Yeah. And they, they wrote a book called, I never met with them, but I was inspired by Rework as this is a, a new way of bringing together teams and empowering individuals. And so I think we're seeing that, and I don't know. I want to get too philosophical, but as a societal change, right? So empowering our teams with the tools and remote work is pushing this to enable and encourage that diverse set of viewpoints and leadership and knowing there is a uh, positive contribution right so so moving away from the the legacy top-down styles and certainly the pandemic has accelerated this to a massive extent right you know to to a large and and I love seeing the debate you know currently everybody's got to come back to the office people can stay remote working right and that's why i I you know uh, recognize the rework uh, book and and the base camp team because They pioneered this, right, when nobody thought it was possible, right? Now, coming out of the pandemic, everybody's saying, come back to the office. And I think we need a responsibility to really support our teams, right? Like, let's recognize that the daily commutes were statistically killing people, higher divorce rates, higher heart attacks, ruining people's lives, right? So, forcing, if we know we have this model that works... Is there some healthy in between and how does that contribute to, to contribute to really, you know, positive leadership that empowers the entire team? Right. And so I don't know if that's a single piece of advice. I think I took, you know, obviously bits and pieces from, from lots and inspiration from the early innovators in the space, but I'm hoping we take those lessons away to heart and, you know, build team structures that really enable that. Have you checked out
1: Ryan Singer's new book, Shape Up?
0: Uh, no, I haven't. No. So you've got DHH, right? And then his yep.
1: co-founder, and then basically Ryan's like right there. Okay. Under the two. He's grown a lot. I He was ap- actually episode number seven okay. uh, on this show, right? Yep. And he just released a book, but it's, it's what you would expect coming out of that company, right? Okay. Interesting yeah. ideas, talking about shaping up and ideology around building software and things of that nature.
0: Yeah, you know, I'd pick on them, but I think the pandemic really kind of proved them right to some degree, but also dude, there's limitations to staring at a screen and not getting people together. So just. What type of dogs do you have? <laughs> yeah. Apologize. Sorry about that. Yeah. We've got, uh, well, basically two mutts, but one that looks a little bit more like a lab. Another one looks a little bit lower like a, a Belgian Malinois up there. Sometimes oh, nice. a
1: little too loud. <laughs> nice. Oh, we've got we've got dogs, uh, German Shepherd, and then yeah. Every time people we hear barking in the background, I always people will come up to me at conferences and stuff to be like, when they have dogs, ask what type of dog it is. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> like, okay, I work for the people. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. No, that's fun. Awesome, man. We made a podcast. How do you feel? Yeah. Great.